You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is Prophetic Prototype, Episode 1 with Eric Walsh. It's good to be with you. It's an honor and a privilege to be here at these beautiful grounds um, and to share God's word. Um, I'm going to just share the verse before we... Um, have a word of prayer. Matthew chapter 11, starting at verse 14, starting at verse 10, it says, For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Verse 12 says, and from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you will receive it, this is Elias, which was for to come. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. Our message this Wednesday morning is entitled, Called in dark times, called in dark times. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to share your word. Lord, I ask that you make me just a nail upon the wall, a rusty, sorry nail, Lord. But upon that nail, I ask that you hang a portrait of Jesus Christ. Let Eric Walsh not be seen or heard today. Instead, Father, let us hear a word from the throne room of grace. It is our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. My sessions, I'm going to be focusing on John the Baptist, his relevance to us as the end-time church, and, and different aspects of his life and the lessons that we can learn from those aspects. So we're going to start uh, even before he was born. In Luke 1 and verse 5, some of the most important verses to give us understanding of what happens um, even before conception when God calls people to work for him. Luke 1.5 says, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abia, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And this tells you that on both sides of John the Baptist's family, priesthood was, of, was in his lineage. And they were both righteous, the Bible says, before God, walking on all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. And they had no child because that Elizabeth was barren, and they both were now well stricken in years. This is a, almost a recurring theme in Scripture. A, a set of parents called to bear a special child after the time for having children has gone. The Scripture says something important. Now, remember that for the past 400 years, at the time that Luke is describing, there has been no revealed messages, no prophecy. In fact, Israel's attempts to liberate herself from Greek and Roman rule has been from people like the Maccabees. They've been tried through violent overthrow. And the idea of the Messiah has morphed from the idea that Isaiah originally had as he prophesied and the other prophets had of the Messiah into one of a militant king, one who would come and throw off the shackles of the Romans. That is the environment in which John the Baptist and Jesus are born, a time of activism, of revolution, of the idea of freedom. 
It is a time when globally everyone is looking for their fair shake as they are trampled upon by what is described in Daniel 2 as, a, as an empire who is like the power of legs and at the strength of iron. So here, every woman is hoping that their child would be the Messiah. And in that environment, a barren woman is chosen. The Bible says it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office, this is uh, Zacharias, before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. Something happens as he's doing his duty inside the temple. The scripture says, an angel of the Lord appears, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Here he is going about doing what he does, and here an angel shows up. When Zechariah saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. He was worried, who is this? <laughs> I'm in the temple, and an angel shows up. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard. And thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. Here's the power in that, 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 that verse. You can miss it if you read it too fast. The prayer that is being answered is a prayer that had to have been prayed literally, possibly, decades earlier. You're missing this thing. Because once it was clear through menopause that his wife was not going to bear a child, I would have to believe they probably stopped praying for a child. The angel says, listen, the prayer you prayed in your reproductive prime years, I have come now to answer. Sometimes it seems like, seems like God has forgotten us. It seems like our prayers missed him, that somehow he didn't hear. But let me tell you something, he may not come when you want him to come. But he's always right on time. And here he comes. Your prayers heard. Your wife is going to bear a son and you're going to call his name John. And he says, and you will have joy and gladness. And many shall rejoice at his birth. All the years of pent up frustration. Now you're going to get in your older times. Nothing but joy and gladness out of this child. Powerful. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord. That's why you're going to have joy and gladness. And look at what the Bible says, because this is what we're going to focus on. We're going to get into some, some heavy, a little bit of, of, of maternal health science here in a second. But he shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn unto the Lord their God. The angel says to him, listen, this child is going to be special. He cannot touch alcohol. From the time he's in his mother's womb, he's going to already have been filled with the Holy Spirit. He's going to be that special child. And he says, and many of the children of Israel shall turn to the Lord their God. In other words, he is coming to bring Israel back, or those who will listen, back from rebellion against God. So what we know is that what happens, and the reason these things are so important, is that in fact, even before a woman conceives, science is at play and working to affect the child. Now, one of the things we talk about, these are goody mice here, they normally look like this. If you just left them alone, let them eat what they want, this is how they come out. If you find methyl donors, and the methyl group donors here, can do something 
we call flip switches on their genetic code. It is what we call epigenetics. Why does that matter? Because we are often told that we are the product of our genes. That simply you get what uncle had and grandpa had and mom had and dad had. The science is saying something different. And one of the reasons in the Bible there's this pattern of either the mother and the mother and the child being told uh, distinct lifestyle characters that they, characteristics that they should follow is because what you do as a parent, huh, even before the child is conceived, will impact how the child lives later on. Epigenetics. In other words, there are, there are like switches that literally can be flipped and turn on and off genes. So when they gave these rats methyl, these mice methyl donors, which are what? Fruits and vegetable rich foods. Donate methyl. And when they did that, these mice that used to look like this began to look healthy and normal. Their offspring look healthy and normal like this. The story of John the Baptist, as we begin to look at this, because in one of my presentations I'm going to talk about the fact that the spirit of prophecy, Ellen White says, that for the remnant church, John the Baptist is one of the prototypes of who we should look to. And if that's the saying, it means that just as care had to be taken in preconception, in his, in, in, while he was in utero, and in his development, this message today focuses on the fact that children today in these dark times who are called to help us finish this work, we need to make sure that they are in an environment that protects them and allows them the best development for the cause of Christ. And I submit to you that just as John the Baptist was in an environment of many false doctrines and, and many false ways of thinking, uh, just as he was in a time when the relig religious leaders had gone astray, listen, our children are going to be raised in a similar environment. They're going to be raised even by folk who are going to begin to preach that what's most important is to throw off the shackles of oppression on earth now rather than liberating your own soul from the shackles of sin. All around the world, people are marching in the streets. I'm watching as more and more of our churches are willing to, 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 to shut down and go out and march along with people in the streets, marching for rights. And, I, and don't get me wrong, as, as we're studying the Sabbath school lesson this quarter, you can see that there is a role for, for, for us to be involved and to work for social justice and other things. But I would argue that if you're not careful, the devil will use something that can be seen as good as a distraction. And all of a sudden, what becomes more important isn't the, sa the saving of souls, but of changing the condition of living on earth. And that distinction can cause many to go astray. The epigenetics are real. And there's so much more I could get into on this, but, lot, but let me move on. Luke 1.17 says, And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. His purpose, his calling was serious. So he was not just called in purpose, he was called to be pure. Right? You go hand in hand. There are many who are willing to want purpose, but they don't want purity. They don't want to shake off the world. The scripture says, Luke 180, and the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, 
and was in the desert till the day of his showing unto Israel. Another lesson here before we get into some of the things that are attacking our children in this day and age. I want you to notice, although the scripture says, the angel says, that he would be the full of the Holy Spirit from his womb, notice he still grows in the Spirit. He still grows in the Spirit. There is a purpose that we have in raising our children, to grow them in the Spirit so that day after day, hour upon hour, our children are getting to know God more and more and more. More filled with the Holy Ghost. John the Baptist's parents weren't satisfied with the fact that he had the Holy Spirit in his womb. And we know this because when Jesus comes close to him in his mother's womb, in Mary's womb, what does John the Baptist do? He leaps. Oh, I like that verse. He leaps in the womb of his mother. He does not wait to be born to praise Jesus as God. Ellen White says it like this, Child Guidance, page 199, what the child sees and hears is drawing deep lines upon the tender mind, which no after circumstances in life can entirely efface. The intellect is now taking shape and the affections receiving direction and strength. Repeated acts in a given course become habits. These may be modified by severe training in afterlife, but are seldom what? Seldom changed. I want you to know that one of the reasons I know Ellen White was definitely a prophet is because she speaks to neurochemical and behavioral issues in such a way as science took decades to catch up to. This is one of those quotes. It's powerful. She says, listen, it's drawing deep lines upon the tender mind. Look at the wording she uses. No after circumstance in life can entirely efface. These are true neuroanatomical statements. She says that these become habit, and of course, habits become character. So literally, what you do on a daily basis, the habits you form, <laughs> reshape your mind. And that reshaping on a physical, neural, and anatomical level, that reshaping becomes your character. Your character isn't just some essereal thing. It is literally an interplay of what's going on in the mind. She says, once formed, habits become more and more firmly impressed upon the character. The intellect is continually receiving its mold from opportunities and advantages, ill or well improved. Day by day, we form characters which place the students as well-disciplined soldiers under the banner of Prince Emmanuel or rebels under the banner of the Prince of Darkness. Then she asked this question, which shall it be? Are we raising our children to be soldiers in the army of the living God or to take up arms as rebels against the kingdom of God. What's interesting is that there isn't a middle ground. You're either doing one or the other. There's no neutral state for your child to be raised in. So how does this happen? Well, habits live in a part of the brain called the basal ganglia. And you can see that here. It sits behind the prefrontal cortex. What, sits, what happens there are emotions, pattern recognition, and memories. That all happens right in here, right? So where habits are formed is also one of the emotional centers of the brain. That's important because the emotion swells up, and sometimes people are thinking out of their emotion and not out of their reasoning or logic centers of their brain. Now, I would argue that that's literally probably the physiologic definition of stubbornness. Some of you got that. Some of you get that over the veggie food at lunchtime. You'll get it later. Watch this. The prefrontal cortex is here. This is where decisions are made. 
Now, what's interesting about the prefrontal cortex, there's two things. In one of my messages, I talk about, I talk about the sealing of the mind and God's seal. The fact that it happens in the, only in the forehead. I believe the reason for that is because it is it, behind this bone in the forehead is where the frontal lobe of your brain, the prefrontal cortex sits. You are sealed there because it is the imprint given by the Holy Spirit on the part of your brain where character sits that actually makes you have the character of Christ. So this part of your brain is what the devil is after. And if he's after this part of your brain as an adult, do you think he's after that part of your brain as a child? This, in, in some of my talks, I talk, I, when, I, when I equate the body to the sanctuary, this is the most holy place. This is where the Shekinah glory of God falls, right? The Ten Commandments is, 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 is like um, the conscience. The budding rod of Aaron is like memory and faith. I mean, I could go on with all of the analogies, but that is why it's so important. So watch this. What's interesting, however, is when you form a habit, the part of your brain that processes information and causes you to think goes to sleep. Did you get that? In other words, once you have the habit, you do it without asking any questions about its consequence. You can do it and turn off reasoning. There's an advantage. God created us with that for a reason. But of course, like every other system, the devil hijacks it. Now watch this. So habits make things easier, like typing. When I was in, um, in, in junior high, I had to take typing class. And I didn't want to take it. I told my mother I didn't want to take it. I said, I'm a man. I'm never going to type. I was, okay, that was a horrible thing for me to say, I admit. And my mother said, no, you're a man who's going to type. Um, so she was right. Isn't it funny? And now I can type on my computer because I took that class. Um, but those, type, those were old typers. My school, I, I'm not that old, but those typewriters were from like the 50s. They were big, heavy things. If you, like they were blunt force objects. Like they could be used as weapons, literally. And you, and you couldn't just type like we do now. You, you, you kind of have to throw your body into the typewriter. Do you, some of you remember that. And so you, where you place your hands and how you type really mattered. Now, the teacher told us how to lay our hands and, the, and to practice. And there were ways that we practiced, things that we had to type to learn where each key was. And I'm still nobody's great typer. But when you get good enough at typing, don't miss this, you can type and hold a conversation. You can type and process information to create content to type. God designed us so that there's a system in our brain, and I'm going to describe the system in a second, that allows us to be able to do high-level functioning tasks, very high, like play piano or type, and really not have to think about it. Powerful. It was designed so that man could do great things. Imagine if sin had never entered the world. The, cap the capacity of the human mind, what the earth would have been like. The antediluvian world corrupted these talents right? The Tower of Babel. I mean, I could go on and on. So it's interesting. So what happens is it's designed to make things easier. So in between the spaces of the nerves, there's this space, there's a, um, the synaptic cleft here. I use dopamine because dopamine is relevant to our conversation. I won't get into it now, but dopamine is the feel-good chemical in your brain. You probably all heard of it, right? So if you eat food, if you drink water, um, intimacy, um, you know, certain things actually help you release dopamine naturally, right? So that's why you can get addicted to some of those things. Um, and the food industry, this is not in this talk, but the food industry actually designs food to make you release more dopamine when you eat certain food more than others. So that you get more pleasure out of some than others, right? 
Cigarettes are notorious. They highly release, nicotine highly causes the release of dopamine into synaptic cleft. When it hits the receptor, it sends a, it sends a signal of pleasure. And that's how cocaine, all these things are so addicting. But I'm showing you this just to give you the way it works. There's a sack, it comes down to the end, it do- drops the dopamine, it connects to the receptor. Remember this, because, and I'll, I'll point this out here because I won't show it again. All drugs work on this side of the, synap- of the synapse, the presynaptic nerve ending. Only marijuana works on the postsynaptic nerve ending, where the receptors go. I'm going to talk about marijuana later on, but while this is up, let me show you it now, so when I come back to it, you can remember this slide. So if you replace dopamine here with acetylcholine, the same thing happens. And acetylcholine is the chemical in your brain that causes memory. So it is, it is critical to the formation of habits. Acetylcholine is. Now, so how does it work? Well, the acetylcholine does the same thing. The more you do it, the more that pathway becomes developed. So if a child comes home from school, sits down to do their homework, the pathway to come home from school, sit down and do their homework, the acetylcholine works, 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 works. The more they do it or play the piano or type, after a while, they need more. They do it so much, their body says, you know what, we really are doing this a lot. Let's make it easier and easier and easier to do. And you start putting boutons here, which is, and I'm sure my French is horrible, but that's French for buttons, right? So the boutons are put on the end here, and when they go there, what happens is your body starts to make more and more and more boutons. So all of a sudden, that pathway is strengthened with sacs, which I can show you here, um, of acetylcholine on a, this is a, on electron micro, microscopy. Here, the boutons literally start to form. So all of the sacs, all of the sacs, boutons start to form, and guess what happens? After a while, playing the piano just as natural. It's easy. But watch this. So now our video games, if that's what you do all day, every day. So is snacking, if that's what you do all day, every day. So is the movement of a cigarette from your pocket to your mouth. All of a sudden, the habit happens, and it becomes so entrenched that literally you can have a behavior that you don't consider before you do it. Now, what's most frightening about that is if you do this as a child, just as Ellen White says, if you do that, it forms deep grooves in the mind that are later very difficult to efface. Meaning, once this system is in place, basically you're stuck with it. So, when John the Baptist was a child, he was removed from the city, put into the wilderness, out in the, the desert places. Why was he placed there? His calling was so high, don't miss this, that he had to be put in a place where it was, he was, there was a limit to how much of the corruption that was going on in the city he could be exposed to. Because these little habits fester and grow. Later on in life, you wonder why you can't overcome things. Sometimes they were actually placed there when you were a child. The anatomy of the brain literally changes. Isn't that fascinating? Your brain is not a fixed organ. You actually can change it on a microscopic, neuroanatomical level. By the what we do, we can change it. Let me tell you something. This isn't part of the message either, but I'll throw in another commercial. Adventism as a lifestyle is one of the most protective ways to live to keep your brain from developing bad habit systems. It's one of the reasons 
I believe we are such, we, there's often such a, a, a fire against us and against our beliefs. beliefs. When you follow it out of love for Christ, with all your heart and soul, full surrender, it literally protects you. Because if these things form, you're pretty much stuck with them. So let, let me, let me, okay, you, some of you look really depressed. Uh, let, me, let, me, um, let me give you the way that you get around this, though. So because God is so wonderful, he does something else, though. He allows you to create new habits. And what we know from behavioral health, and I used to work in addiction medicine at the Veterans Hospital at Loma Linda University as part of my training, what we know is if you create new habits, you can form a deeper groove in the new habit, and that will then help to suspend the old habit. But here's the thing, the old habit and that pathway still exists. Until you get a glorified body, that thing is always there. That's why Paul says in Romans 7, the good I would, I do not. And that which I would, that's not what I do. That's why he says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Because literally, if you give your body everything it wants, your body will conspire to kill you. Literally the way we, the body is designed when, it's a, when, it, when it becomes a, a, a habitated or addicted to something that is dangerous. This is why Philippians 2.5, Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was what? Also in Christ Jesus, because you can't trust your mind. So you've got to seek his mind, because if you seek his mind, his mind will cause you to lay down new pathways. Instead of getting up in the morning, and the first thing you do is clicking on the TV and, and watching something, or the, the first thing you do now is drop on your knees. You call on the name of the Lord. You study the Word of God. And over time, by seeking Christ, you start to change your brain from a neuroanatomical perspective. Ellen White says it like this, letter 1, 1887, Satan stands ready to infatuate the mind and soul to pursue a course directly contrary to God's expressed will, that he may separate that soul from God, and he interposes his temptations and gains control over the mind and the heart's affections. You see that? That's through habits. This is Satan's studied plan, his studied plan to lead souls to turn from one mighty in counsel to the persuasion of minds who have no love for God, no love for the truth. So while we say, listen, go after God, seek the face of Jesus. One of my favorite hymns says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. What does it say? And the things of earth will do what? They will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That is saying, listen, as you turn your eyes towards Jesus, literally your mind will change so that the things that you used to be uh, uh, habitually connected to or addicted to, now you don't want to do them anymore. Are oh, y'all missing this thing? The secret to victory over sin and sanctification is to turn your eyes on Jesus. When you love studying his word... More than anything else, when you love family worship and singing hymns, these things where you seek God in fellowship and in study and in prayer will naturally change your mind by developing a rich relationship with the Lord. She says, listen, but what the devil wants to do is turn you from his mighty, perfect counsel to the persuasion of minds who have no love for God and no love for the truth. That's what the devil wants for your children. 
And in the talk, when I talk about the mark of the beast and, and the seal of God, and the mark of the beast is not just given here. It's not just a frontal lobe thing. It's a right hand you can get it in, the mark of the beast, because that symbolizes following. Do you know we are raising children today to be followers? What people say is what pe- how people determine who they are is by who they follow on social media. Who's important is determined by who they follow, like how many followers they have. We are training young people to be followers. Ellen White says that's what the devil wants. He wants your children turned to the persuasion of people who don't believe in God, don't trust God, don't like God. How does he do it? Spiritualism. Low grade. And I, I could get into it from the small, younger comic books and the, young, I mean, the younger cartoons and so forth. But when you look at this, uh, one of our African-American churches, when this movie Black Panther came out, uh, a movie that actually uses the Kosa language, which is interesting. That is the language spoken in the movie as the African language of the made-up country in the movie. This movie is a movie all about spiritualism. One of our churches literally rented out the movie theater, an entire movie theater, and any members that wanted to go could go watch this movie for free. Now, what's deep is that this movie, if you just read the, read the, read the um, write-ups on it, Black Panther, popular movie, everyone celebrated the movie. What's interesting is that it really is African animism, ancestor worship, it, is devo- it, it teaches that there isn't the, the state of the dead doesn't exist, that you can go to some special tree and visit your dead relatives. So why would Adventists want to expose their children to this? How on one night of a crusade can you be telling the living know that they should die, but the dead know not anything? But then on Saturday night, the whole church is going to watch a movie that tells exactly the opposite, except it does a better job of storytelling because it has computer-generated images. It's backed by decades of, 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 cart, of uh, comic book uh, folklore that has been tested and sold. That's one. Look at this. The big villain that everybody's talking about now, Thanos. He's supposed to be like Jehovah, except he's a horrible, terrible person. And look at what the t- subtitle is. A God up there listening. Do we want our children exposed to this stuff? John the Baptist's parents made sure to withdraw them because there was a work that needed to be done for the first advent of Christ. We must withdraw our children from this stuff because there's a work to be done for the second advent of Christ. Look at what the, look at what the internet says. This is an article, I forget where I pulled this from, it says, how superhero films are replacing religion and teaching us how to live. You see that? They're replacing all of those things. They teach evolution. The X-Men have a gene that caused them to evolve. Here's a, car, a, a cartoon um, on the missing link. There's no missing link. If you study the science, there's no missing link. They've never found one. So what do they do? They start making cartoons for children about a missing link so that when they tell them there's a missing link in school, they just believe it. This is what is happening. This is what our kids are being exposed to. And one of the reasons it's so important for us to, to be teaching them the truth Evolution is one of the strongest of all of the enemy's lies. I've gotten into, when I give my testimony on Sunday, uh, you'll hear more about it, but I got in big trouble for being a a government scientist who taught against evolution. And I realize now that if what the devil wants, you see, the devil understands if, if, if he can teach evolution and everyone accepts it, that means, and even Adventists, I've met Adventist professors teaching in some of our schools that have said to me, I am a scientist. How can I believe, how can I not believe in evolution? I was like, how can you be an Adventist and an evolutionist? Like, well, so when was the seventh day? 
it would be millions of years long, right? It, does, it really doesn't make any sense. But evolution is one of the devil's key tools because if God is lying to us in Genesis chapter 1 and, and, and chapter 2, why would we believe God in John chapter 3 and verse 16? And so they start teaching our children from a very young age. But it's not just that. As our kids get older, they want to intoxicate our youth. The legalization of marijuana. I'll talk about alcohol first. The Bible is clear. John the Baptist was not to ever touch alcohol, strong drink. He wasn't supposed to touch it. Uh, we were, I was do, preaching at a church last weekend, do, um, and we were talking about different um, uh, current topics in health and, and medicine and so forth. And one member said, listen, I've been reading that, that wine is good for you, so um, you know, I, I, you know, drinking a glass of wine a night shouldn't be a problem, should it, pastor, preacher, doctor? What, is it a problem? I said, listen, Solomon says that you are not to look at it when it swirls in the cup and it moves itself aright. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. It's a terrible thing. It's a deceptive. That's why the Scripture says, that's why the Scripture is clear that you are not supposed to be deceived by alcohol because it's deceptive. And I told her that. I said, what I've found with my patients as a physician is that you might be doing one drink a night for years, and then all of a sudden you have a personal crisis. And all of a sudden, in order to cope with the crisis, what do you turn to? Alcohol. And your consumption shoots up all of a sudden. That can happen. And our young people are being exposed to this. In fact, it is so normalized that alcohol is good. And to go back to the wine thing, it's the resveratrol in wine that's good for you, not the alcohol. You can get resveratrol from blackberries, blueberries, strawberries, dark grapes. You don't have to drink wine to get it. Our young people are being exposed in all of these things. And one of the big things... Let me tell you, as a public health person, and last week I was with one of the former Surgeon Generals of the United States. They came to hear me talk at a church uh, in, 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 in Atlanta. And so I've been in the public health game for a long while. I've watched America fight. It was a fight Ellen White was involved with against tobacco. She was involved in that fight when she was alive. And I've seen us now go after the tobacco industry, sue them, and the rates of people who smoke cigarettes have come down drastically. Here's what's interesting. As the rates of cigarettes and tobacco consumption has gone down, the rates of vaping and electronic cigarettes do what? Go up. Isn't that interesting? But not only that, somebody figured out, well, if we can't sell a, 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 a nicotine to smoke, a tobacco to smoke and get nicotine, we'll give them marijuana. Did you know in the United States that there were billboards? I should have put that up here. Billboards that used to say, if for your anxiety, it would say things like, for your anxiety, four out of five doctors recommend camel cigarettes. The idea of medicinal marijuana is just a replay of what they did with tobacco decades ago. Now, Sanjay Gupta, someone who's an amazing physician, works on CNN, he had a whole special about the medical properties of marijuana. People bought in because what people think is, well, if it makes for good medicine, it must be good for you. What people don't know is Tylenol, which we think is so harmless, if you take four grams of it at once, it can shut down your liver. Just because it's legal and, and, and medicinal doesn't mean it can't be deadly. Right? They say, well, marijuana is natural. I say, so is poison ivy. Completely natural. You're going to roll around in it. So what marijuana does is different. I believe it is a gateway drug because it works on the postsynaptic nerve, meaning it changes the way you feel all the other drugs. It does something else, though. 
it, it, because of the way it works, it takes away the, 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 the pleasure that the dopamine is supposed to, to release and you should receive when you get a good grade on an exam or do good in a class or accomplish a task. And so it also causes something we call amotivational syndrome. Here's what's crazy. The studies now show, we used to say, well, it's only if you're under 18 that marijuana causes psychotic illness, increases the risk of psychotic illness, is the way I should say it. So the studies were overwhelming. So nobody should smoke it before 18. A study recently came out and said, you know what? Actually, at any age, you smoke it regularly or the high-potency marijuana of today. The THC contents are much higher, 10, 20 times higher, maybe more in some, in some products. This is why I bring this up because I'm shocked in our churches how much of this is happening. The alcohol, the marijuana. The reality, it's not harmless. There's a new disease around marijuana. It's called, it's called cannabis-induced hyperemesis syndrome, where people smoke so much weed they can't stop throwing up. And I've seen three patients like that myself. So I challenge you. Make sure you talk to young people about this in your circle. It is not harmless. It is being legalized everywhere. I believe it's legal um, north of the border. It's legal in many of, our, of the states in the United States. It's, it's, a, it's a legal substance everywhere, but it is, just because it's legal does not mean it's not harmful. It can cause increased risk for psychotic illness, or diseases like schizophrenia. The other problem when you start doing all of this is the suicide rates for U.S. teens and young adults are at the highest on record. And let me tell you what's happening, really. When I did addiction medicine, the, 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 the veterans well, would do some chants, and when some of them were recovering from their addiction, one of the chants that they did in one of the groups I was in was profound. They said, God made the human heart so big, only he can fill it. And I pulled a guy and said, what does that mean? He said, what we have found as veterans that have a, a problem with addiction, he said, what we have found is that if you don't fill the God-sized hole in your heart with God, you'll always find something to be addicted to. He said, you, if you try and fill that hole with cocaine, you'll be a, be a crack addict or cocaine addict. Alcohol, you'll be an alcoholic. Gambling, you'll gamble yourself into poverty. He said, there's a God-sized hole that must be filled with God. Let me tell you something. In America, what's, what's really challenging our young people, I believe, there's a hole in them. We think we can fill that hole with entertainment and drugs, alcohol, sex, pornography, all these different things. But let me tell you something. Until that hole is filled, suicide rates may continue to just keep creeping up. We're going to continue to see children who don't feel wanted, who feel lost, who have no purpose in life. They simply seek pleasure. So it is a sad thing that this is happening. This happened even in my own family. I lost a 13-year-old cousin to suicide. And I had to fly all the way home to Miami and deliver a eulogy for a 13-year-old baby. This is the world in which we live. This means that we need to be putting our arms around our children, not just telling them what to do, telling them that we love them, holding them, kissing them, connecting with them. My mother was a single mother, and I tell you, she was tough. A lot of people thought we grew up to be criminals and gangsters, but my mother was a whole lot stronger than they realized. Because one blow from my mother was enough, and you would behave yourself for weeks on end. But she didn't just punish, she loved us. She hugged us, she kissed us. She let us know we were special. Let me tell you something, we live in a time when you've got to wrap your arms around. The angel says, uh, says to John the Baptist's father, he said, listen, he's going to bring you great joy and gladness. 
Allow your children to be great joy and gladness and show them that. Desire of Ages, page 101, in childhood and youth, the character is most impressible. The power of self-control should then be acquired by the fireside and that the family board influences are exerted whose results are as enduring as eternity. More than any natural endowment, the habits established in early years decide whether a man will be victorious or vanquished in the battle of life. Youth is the showing time. It determines the character of the harvest for this life and for the life to come. I want my children with me in the next life. I remember I was working, I say this sermon, this story in my sermons, of a, of a gentleman who was about 45 years old when I met him. He had gotten into trouble. I was working at the Veterans Hospital, and um, he got in serious trouble with the law. He was on the I-10 freeway, and he was driving out towards Palm Springs, California. I was in Loma Linda working at that VA. And he came in, and he sat down, and he said, Doc, I want to die. I said, we just started. You want to die already? He didn't get the joke. He didn't think it was very funny. Sullen face, flat affect. He said, I'm serious. I want to die. I said, sir, if you want to die, why'd you come to the hospital? He said, I figured I'd have a better chance of dying here than anywhere else. I was like, I was like, I was like okay. <laughs> I said, how'd you get here? He said, I was driving on the I-10 freeway towards Palm Springs, and I was high as a kite, drunk, out of my mind, and the car was swerving back and forth, he said. He said, I was pulled over by the police when they saw this, and when they, when they realized how intoxicated I was, they searched the car, and in the trunk of my car was all the elements needed to create crystal methamphetamines. I had a meth lab in my trunk. I was going to, out into the desert to rent a motel room to set up a meth lab. I sell half of the product, and I get high on the other half. He said, when I got pulled over, they took me to jail, and they brought me in front of a judge who was also a veteran, and he said, because I'd served my country um, with courage and with, with, with honor and with, was discharged, he said, the judge said, you have two choices. You can go to prison, or you can go to the VA hospital and get rehab. He said, doc, I chose to come here because I want to die. I said, why do you want to die so bad? He said, two years ago, my mother died. A year ago, my father died. The man said, two weeks ago, my dog died. I just want to die. And I stopped, and I said, Lord, what do I say to this man? The Spirit of God whispered in my ear and said, ask him, who am I? I said, sir, do you know who Jesus is? He said, yes, he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I said, sir, if you know that, then why do you want to die? He said, because I've done too much wrong for God to ever accept me. He began to tell me about his childhood, drug addiction as a teenager, going off to war and getting even deeper into drugs. He told me how he was molested as a child and how he had gotten into of severe sexual sin, and, and he was married and left his wife stateside while he was serving, and she was cheating on him and taking half his check, and he was just out of his mind angry and frustrated, and he would numb his pain with drugs. He said, Doc, I've done things that you wouldn't even believe. I said, Lord, what do I say? I pulled down a government-issued progress note form. I began to write out the plan of salvation. 
I said, sir, you don't understand. Before the world began, God knew your name. And a plan was put in place before the world began to compensate for the sin you've committed. It's called a plan of redemption. And I'm telling you, sir, that Jesus came to earth wrapped in the clothes of the flesh of a baby. Jesus came and lived a sinless life, died on the cross. And sir, he would have died if you were the only sinner on the planet. He said, you mean Jesus would have died for just me? I said, not only that, on the third day he rose so that he got the keys to to the grave and to death. I said, and right now, he's in the most holy place of the sanctuary, and your case can be brought up before him. He is a high priest who knows where you've been. And I said, sir, it's not a coincidence that we met today. He started to weep, and he said it again. You mean Jesus would forgive me? All the pain of his childhood... All the difficulty he had suffered in his life, all the things that he had been through, all came to a head in that moment. As he and I sat face to face in that exam room, as he began to cry, as he began to think of all the things he had done, and he said, how do you know Jesus would forgive me? And I said, sir, I've got proof. I raised my hand. I said, sir, you see, he saved a wretch like me. He began to sob, and he fell to his knees on the ground. I fell to my knees on the ground, and as he sobbed, and I cried, and we prayed together, he gave his life to Jesus right there on the floor of the hospital. I saw him about a week later. I was there doing rounds with the attending physicians, and he comes running down the hallway. Brother doctor, brother doctor, throws his arms around me, and he says, you won't believe it. He said, since we prayed, I haven't even had the desire for drugs or alcohol. He said, it's gone. I said, wonderful. I said, so how is everything else going? Are you getting your life back on track? He said, I've got one problem, doc. They keep kicking me out of the Alcoholics Anonymous and the Narcotics Anonymous meetings. I was like, why are they kicking you out of the meetings? He said, they tell me that I'm calling on the name of Jesus too much. I saw him a few years later. He was still in Christ. I'll tell you that story to tell you. What happens in our, in, our, in our childhood can affect us. We have got to take care of our children, protect them from the wiles of this world. But not only that, we've got to introduce adults to their father. Remind them that they are a child of the living God. If they can accept him, he will accept them. And they can be adopted. Wherefore we cry, Abba, Father. And let me tell you something, church. The work that we have to do to finish for many people is going to be to introduce them to a God who not only loves them and understands them and who knows them, but will forgive them whose blood still washes and still cleanses. The work of John the Baptist was to turn the hearts of the people back to God. The work we have as his remnant is to turn the hearts of the people back to God, to prepare them for his soon coming. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord.
for this opportunity to study your word in the life of John the Baptist. Lord, we pray, those who are parents or grandparents or even just church members in churches where there are many children, that we would be first and foremost an example. But secondly, Father, we pray that our children would be taught of you. And Lord, we would protect their malleable, moldable minds from the influences of a very dark world. Father God, empower us by the, by, with the Holy Spirit. The Lord, we might be able to raise up young people who will finish this work. This is our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. Let everyone say, amen. If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit AmazingDiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.